Uh, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray that you will uh, be here with us today. I pray that you will uh, speak to us, that you will open our hearts uh, to hear what you have to say and to, um, to speak your truth. I pray that, that you will speak through me uh, and that your words are true and that anything that is untrue for me, that will fall to the ground. Um, we thank you, Lord, that you, you desire to teach us and that you want to teach us more about you, Lord. Help us to listen. Amen. All right, before we look closely at the passage today, let us remind ourselves of where we are in 1 Samuel. Samuel is now getting old, and the people of Israel are looking for someone to lead them. They won't settle for another prophet like Samuel. Samuel reminds them that the Lord is their king, but they won't listen. They want another king. They want a king like the nations around them. And the Lord warns them that a king will not treat them fairly. It will make claims against the people and their possessions. Finally, the Lord relents and tells Samuel who will be their king. God chose Saul. And from the outside, he looks like a good king. He comes from a wealthy family and is tall and handsome. And through the events that can only be described as divine providence... Saul comes to Samuel and discovers all that God has planned for him. Saul is anointed as king, and Samuel tells Saul to go to the town of Gilgal and wait seven days for Samuel to come and to offer sacrifices and to instruct him on what to do next. And a lot takes place during those seven days. Saul prophesies as the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, Saul raised an army and saved a city from the Ammonites. And finally, we heard from Steve last week, Samuel's final address to the nation as their leader. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 13. We see that Saul commissions a permanent army from those he gathered to defend the city of Jabesh from the Ammonites. And his son Jonathan went out and defeated an outpost of Philistines. The Philistines were mounting a response, and Saul and his army became very afraid. Saul remembered what Samuel had told him from chapter 10, verse 8. Go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt sacrifices and sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come down to you and show you what you are to do. So Saul is in Gilgal, and he waited. But on the seventh day, he could wait no longer. He decides to ignore the words of Samuel and perform the sacrifices by himself. And as soon as he finished the sacrifice, Samuel arrives. Samuel declares that God is unhappy with Saul and that Saul's kingdom will come to an end. Now let's take a look and see at the problem. Saul offered a sacrifice to God. Wasn't that a good thing? Doesn't God delight in the aroma of a burnt offering? Well, yes, but more importantly, Saul disobeyed a direct word from God. This is the first time, but spoiler alert, it won't be the last. As we'll see later in chapter 15, verse 22, where Samuel says, after Saul disobeys the second time, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, It is better to obey than to sacrifice. 
than to listen to the fat of the rams. But I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves. Now, this might seem a little petty. Saul waited seven days, just not the full seven days. Samuel's command was to wait until he arrived, a command that Saul failed to keep. Saul failed to honour and obey the word of the Lord. Samuel was God's prophet, God's mouthpiece to the people of God, and more importantly, to Saul as king. And Saul had decided that the word of God wasn't good enough for him. And you can sort of understand some of the reasons why Saul made that decision. He'd only been a king for a few days. His enemies were mounting an attack with a superior army, and his army were only equipped with farming tools. They were trembling and deserting. It felt like Samuel would never come. He felt like he couldn't afford to wait on the Lord. He lacked trust that God's word is true. Saul forgot that God was the true king. This is, of course, the same story as the garden with Adam. God had given Adam a command to work the garden and keep it from Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Instead of protecting the garden and listening to the word word of the Lord and, and protecting the garden, Adam decided to to believe the lie of Satan, the lie that God's word can't be trusted and that he can make his own choices. Adam chose to make himself king over his life and chose to disobey the words of the Lord. And with disastrous consequences, sin entered the world and corrupted mankind. This, of course, is our inheritance from Adam. We are born sinful, believing that we are king over our lives, disobeying the word of the Lord, doing whatever seems good to us. Now let's get back to Saul. In Saul's disobedience, he performed a sacrifice, usually an act of worship. But he wasn't worshipping God. Saul simply went through the motions to get something out of it. Saul wanted God's favour to win the battle against the Philistines. Instead of coming to God and worshipping him and seeking guidance... Saul used the sacrifice like a carrot for God to do his bidding. Hey God, see what I did? I did this sacrifice for you. Can you now go defeat my enemies? Instead of humbly coming before God and acknowledging God for who he is as king, Saul is treating God like his servant. God, do this for me. Now, does this sound familiar to any of us? Have we ever come before God and tried to coax him into doing our will? Have we come to worship on Sunday thinking that our attendance earns brownie points towards something we want? Or that we can make up our wrongs simply by being a good Christian or if somehow giving to charity will cleanse our guilt? No, our good works can never repay for the sins we've committed. We cannot repay for the times we choose to disobey God and choose to be our own king. Firstly, it's, it's not a scale where we have to have our good works outweigh the bad. You can't get away with murder just because you haven't murdered people for the rest of the time. It's it's not as if our obedience earns us credits to break the law. 
But even then, even our best works are still sinful, adding to our guilt. Let me remind you of the words of Titus 3.5. He, being Jesus, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So as we can see, our works, even the best of intentions, cannot save us. Let us look back again at Saul. As a result of Saul not listening to God, for disregarding a direct word of instruction and choosing to disobey God, God declares that Saul's kingdom will come to an end. From verse 13 and 14. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. Saul is just one week into his reign, and already the writing is on his wall. The kingdom will come to an end. But this is not all. There was another consequence from verse 15. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The whole reason Samuel was coming to Gilgal was to deliver more instructions to Saul from God. But instead, Samuel left the presence of Saul. Or more importantly, God was withdrawing his word from Saul. Now God is gracious and he doesn't leave Saul forever. But this was supposed to be a moment where God would speak to Saul through Samuel. An opportunity that is now gone because of Saul's disobedience. So as we look at the failure of Saul and look to learn from his mistakes, what is the solution? Is the solution simply to just try harder, to try and keep God's word? Let us look at the Ten Commandments. I'm going to summarise from Deuteronomy chapter 5. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them. You shall not take the Lord your God in vain. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord God commanded you. Honour your father and your mother. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour, and you shall not covet your neighbour's wife or your neighbour's house or anything that is your neighbour's. Now who here can say that they keep that, that they obey that, obey every commandment all of the time? Because that is the requirement. Saul kept most of what God told him to do. He was in the right place. He waited 95% of the time and he performed a sacrifice, just not by the right person in the right way. But by human standards, looking at Saul's actions, you'd think Saul did pretty well, maybe a minor infraction. But this is not God's standard. God demands perfect obedience to his word. In Jesus' time, there was a man who claimed that he could keep God's laws, as we read in Luke 18, verses 18 to 23. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? For there is no one good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. 
And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and then you will have treasures in heaven. And come and follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. Now, the problem here was not that the man was rich, for rich people can inherit the kingdom of God. The problem was that his wealth was an idol, placed above God in his heart. He couldn't even keep the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. But the situation for us trying to keep God's word gets even worse. In Matthew's gospel, we read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus takes the Ten Commandments and raises the bar. From Matthew 5, 21. You have heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever even insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hells of fire. And skipping down to 27. You have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if that isn't a high enough standard, Jesus finishes the section with this in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this isn't an exaggeration to make a point. Just try to be perfect and you'll be okay. No, this is the standard. Anything less than that is not good enough. So seriously, what hope is there for anyone? If we fail to keep God's word, then we have sinned and we deserve the full punishment, which is death. As we saw back in Titus, simply trying to be a good person, doing righteous activities, will not earn our salvation. Not by sinners, because we have a sinful heart, which is Saul's problem. His heart is in the wrong place. And we can see hints of that earlier in the chapter. Jonathan, Saul's son, goes out and has victory over the Philistines. But it is Saul who literally goes around blowing his own trumpet, declaring that the victory was his. Saul is a proud man, and though he is king, he forgets that God is still king over all. And we are no better. We are proud too. We think that we can be our own king. We can rule our own lives. Our hearts have been fully and wholly corrupted by sin. That everything that we do is to serve ourselves in some direct or indirect way. We are all infected when Adam sinned. And that sin taints everything that we do. Isaiah 64, 6 reads, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. And there is no denying the sin in our hearts. If we think so, we're lying to ourselves. From 1 John 1.18. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. When God declares through Saul correction, through Samuel, that Saul's kingship will come to an end, God reveals what is needed. Someone with a proper heart, a heart that longs after God. From verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord sought after a man after his own heart. So what's the solution then? Change our heart? Is it even possible? 
Can we remove the sin from our heart ourselves? No. David, the successor to Saul as king of Israel, if any man was going to be have the right heart towards God, it would have been David. As it is said that David was a man after God's own heart. Yet he knew he needed a, a new heart. David has this to say in Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He wrote these words after murdering a good man so that he could hide his affair with the man's wife and take her for his own. And David, he's supposed to be one of the good guys, a man after God's heart. There was nothing that David could do himself. He couldn't simply cut out the bad stuff or try harder to be good. David knew that he needed God to create in him a new heart. And good news, God has declared that he will give us a new heart. The Lord, through the prophet Ezekiel, says in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove your dead heart from you and give you a new living heart. And so we see the need that God will give us a new heart. But how will he do it? How does he accomplish this? Through Jesus. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. For those who trust in Jesus for salvation, God will pour out his spirit. They will be born again, born into the spirit with a new heart. But what about the law? How can we have any hope if we're expected to keep the law perfectly? A task that we all know we are unable to achieve. But there is hope. Jesus, the Son of God, who was perfect, kept the law perfectly and died on a cross to bear the punishment due to us for our disobedience. And in the great exchange, our sinfulness has been taken away and placed on Jesus on the cross And the righteousness of Jesus has been given to us. And this great exchange is a free gift. We don't have to earn it by keeping the law or doing righteous deeds. For there is nothing that we can do to earn salvation. In the same way, there is nothing we can do to nullify this gift either. So what does it look like to walk in the Spirit? To live as God has called us to do? God doesn't ask us to do arbitrary things so he can watch us dance like puppets. When Jesus was asked what is the great commandment, he responded with this from Matthew 22. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So love God and love others with all that we have. Now that is what is required. While this is still a monumental and impossible task in and of ourselves, through the power of the Spirit, with a new heart, we can live a life that is pleasing to God. So how do we respond to such good news for what Jesus has done for us? Well, for those who have not yet given your sin to Jesus, he says, come. Lay your sin at the cross and be free from the burden of sin and freely receive the grace of God poured out through the blood of Jesus. Be born again and receive the Holy Spirit. Receive a new heart. 
And for those of us who already believe, who already trust that Jesus has accomplished their salvation on the cross, how should we respond to this reminder today? Well, there are four things that we can do. There's there's more than four, but I've just picked four. Four things that we can do for what God has done for us. The first one is that we can have hope. We can have hope because we don't have to be perfect to earn our salvation. Christ has kept the law perfectly because we were unable to do so. And his righteousness has been given to us. Secondly, we can obey. Through the work of Jesus, we've been given a new heart and the Holy Spirit to work in us, to help us, to help us obey, and to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Not to earn salvation, not to keep up the ratio of good versus bad deeds, but to simply live a life of obedience in response to the love that God has for us and what he has done for us. Thirdly, we can have confidence that we can live for God trying to live as he intends without fear. We don't have to fear our ability to keep God's word perfectly or to keep from sinning. We, yes, we should strive for both of these things, but we don't have to fear losing our salvation. For the grace of God is greater than our sin, and he will forgive us when we inevitably stuff up and fall short of the standard required. And finally, four, we are free to worship Now that we don't have to try to earn anything, we are free to worship God and thank Jesus for what he endured on the cross. We offer our whole lives as a sacrifice of obedience to God. Another way that we worship God is through communion, where we specifically remember how Christ's body was broken and his blood poured out for our forgiveness. And we will get to do that uh, in a few minutes. But for now, I want to close and encourage you with these words. Uh, from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement for the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But for those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And skipping down to verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that you have revealed to us. We thank you for your son Jesus who who was able to obey the law, obey the word of law perfectly because we are unable. And we are sinners and we cannot do what you've asked us to do. But we thank you for Jesus who was able to accomplish that. And through through the gift of Jesus, he has given us our righteousness that we can be part of part of your family. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.